Now we're going to get back to where we were two weeks ago, which was continuing our series. In fact, this is the last in the series called God's at War, Defeating Idols that Battle for Your Heart. Now, the, the thing you got to remember about an idol is an idol isn't just a little statue or a shrine or something like you might think of. Uh, I know I go to this Tan's Donut Shop once in a while, and they're, I think they're Buddhist, and they always have a little shrine over there to the Buddha, and they put a half a donut and some fruit in front of it like the Buddha's going to care. And uh, they're, you know, but that's a symbol of something that they pray that reminds them of praying to whoever they're praying to. And one of the things I wanted to talk about today isn't just idols that are out there or idols that are in our individual lives, but also idols that are in the church. Idols that are in the church, right? Just as a reminder, the Apostle John writes to the church in the same book I referenced when I did communion, and it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. So lest you think that was something that only the Jewish people living in Palestine in the Old Testament days, that's what they had to deal with because they were surrounded by these fertility religions and they all had their gods and goddesses like Baal and Ashtaroth. And we don't have to worry about that today. Well, even in the New Testament, near the end of the New Testament era, the Apostle John says, keep yourselves from idols. Just a reminder of the first two commandments again. God says these words to Moses coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. The very first one of them is, Do not worship any other gods besides me. Which God knows us better than we know ourselves. You say, well, God is God. Of course I'm only going to worship him. But God says, oh yeah, well make sure that in God's presence, there's no other gods in his presence. Right? So there's number one. And then number two, do not make idols of any kind. Right? Do not make them. And he, talk, he goes into detail about making. Don't make an idol in the, in the shape or an image of any bird that flies in the air or any animal that, that is on the ground or any fish or animal that is in the sea. Don't make an idol to look like any of them because those are the creation. And God says, you are to worship your creator, not the creation, right? Pastor Tim Keller, he talks about idols. He's gave the best definition I've heard of in, the last, in, in my lifetime about what an idol is. Tim Keller says this, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and your self-worth, when you just, I mean, you cannot imagine life without this thing in your life. If that thing is not God, then that essentially has become an idol in your life. Something that you're actually worshiping, something you're thinking about all the time, something you're planning to do, something you can't imagine that if it were taken away from you, you wouldn't even want to go on living anymore. And when you think about whatever that is, if that's not God himself, that very easily could become a God, an idol in your life, a, a substitute for God in your life. So what I want to do today is I want us to focus our attention on idols in churches. And yes, I'll, I'll put my cards on the table. I believe that even these local congregations like ours can get knocked off the central worship of God and we can get sidetracked into focusing on other replacements for God himself. I want to begin by telling a story. Uh, it's a story that, is, uh, that we find buried deep in the pages of Israel's history. So this story is coming out of the Old Testament. This story comes out of the book in the Hebrew scriptures called the book of Second Kings, right? There's a great story. Every, every once in a while, a good king comes along. If you know anything about Israel's history, there was this great king that, that God raised up to replace this other king that wasn't so great. His, the great king's name was David, right? And he loved God with all his heart. In fact, uh, God said, I'm searching for a man after God's own, God's own heart. And the man that God found was David. And David had his flaws, but he loved God with all his heart. And so every other good king that came along after David was always compared to David. He was good if he acted like David. He was bad if he didn't act like David. And we're going to find a king that came along that acted like David. Um, every church, this is going back to ourselves now, every church has to take a look in the mirror and see uh, if, if there's anything around us that has become sacred, that has become something that is so important to us that we're not going to live without and if that, whatever that we call sacred, if that's not God himself, we have to watch out that that doesn't become an idol, right? So we're in 2 Kings, 
uh, the writers in the New Testament, by the way, uh, Paul in the New Testament, when he says, when you Christians, when you go back and you read the Hebrew Scriptures, why do you do that? Why do you go back and read them? In Romans 15, the Apostle Paul says this, such things were written in the Scriptures long ago in order to teach us. And the Scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. So why do you go back and read the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament? They were written long ago to teach us to provide encouragement for us in our lives today. So we're going to talk about this king, his name. This is 2 Kings chapter 18. So if you have that in your Bibles, great. You can look up on the screen for some verses, uh, or you can look on your smartphones and your tablets. By the way, that is not an idol in church. When somebody breaks out their smartphone or tablet, they very well could be looking up a, an app that leads them to the scriptures themselves, right? I remember when phones first came in, just, just saying that uh, I remember a lot of Christians were in the church and they were giving the stink eye to people who had their, their, their tablets or their smartphones or something because they said, how, could you, how dare you bring that worldly instrument into the church? We have the word of God and it's right here and it's... In, it's in between these two pieces of cardboard, and this is the Bible, and there's no other way to read the Bible. I don't know why you're putting scriptures up on the screen. That's wrong. I don't know why you're breaking the... No, the point is, I have hidden your word in my heart. God says it right in Psalm 119. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you get God's word in your life? If you get it by opening up a paper Bible to read it, wonderful. If you go on Version or Bible Gateway and you read the scriptures electronically, great. If you see God's word up on the screen and you read it and you think about it and meditate on it and say, how am I going to apply this in my life? God's word is doing its work no matter what the method of delivery is. You see what I mean? You see what I mean? Like somehow something that is tradition can become a sacred cow it maybe needs to get turned into a gourmet burger. All right. King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah, he lived about 700 years before the time of Jesus Christ. And as I said, Hezekiah was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom called Judah. That's where the Jews came from, by the way. The inhabitants of the kingdom of Judah were called Jews. That's where they got their name originally. King Hezekiah was also a contemporary of the great prophet named Isaiah. So, I mean, wouldn't it be pretty cool to be a king in Judah? And, to, and if you need a consult from God, you need to know what the Lord wants you to do or, or get direction from the Lord, you could say, hey, Isaiah, can I talk to you? Can you, can, you, can you give me a little insight here? Because Isaiah was a powerful prophet of God, contemporary of this king, right? So Hezekiah, he, we begin uh, 2 Kings chapter 18, and he is commended by God, right? Because Hezekiah followed an evil king named Ahaz. And Ahaz brought idolatry into the land, Baal worship, Asherah worship, uh, passing his kids through the fire like the god Molech. He did some terrible things. Hezekiah, his son, came along, and he didn't follow in his father's footsteps. And that's a good thing. Because if your father does evil, you don't want to follow in his footsteps. He did what was right. So look what he said, Hezekiah. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his ancestor David had done. David was always the standard for, for who's a good king in Israel, right? So the next verse now deals with what he did. So he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. What did he do that was so right and honoring to God, right? So he says he removed the pagan shrines. He smashed, right? So he brought, okay, he, he I want to read this to you before we get to that uh, verse 4 there. It says, He removed the pagan shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah poles. All these symbols of idolatry, of all these fertility gods that these nations around Israel were all worshiping other than the Lord God, the creator of heaven and earth, they were worshiping these other gods. And Hezekiah says, Get rid of those objects of worship. They're idols. And so he smashed them. He removed the pagan shrines, smashed the pillars, cut down the Asherah poles. And now I want you to see a little detail. Because we're talking about idols in church. And you're saying, what does this story have to do with idols in church? I think you're going to see in just a moment. So look what he did. He broke up. This is Hezekiah. He broke up the bronze serpent that Moses had made. Because the people of Israel had been offering sacrifices to it. Somehow in Hezekiah's day... 700 years after the event took place, 
originally with Moses in the wilderness, and I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. 700 years later, the bronze snake is still around, and the people are worshiping the bronze snake. So that's a, that's a big problem. Big problem, right? God uh, raised up this strong spiritual leader, Hezekiah. He removes idols, Asherah poles, and high places. Um, he's they were grabbing the hearts of the people. They were stealing worship away from the Lord. And so they would expect, right? They would expect that the people in Judah at the time, they would expect their spiritual leader to insist that they stop worshiping other gods. And of course, that's what Hezekiah did. He did, he did all that, but then he did something that was really unexpected. Unexpected. Because worship, you know, taking the fertility gods of the nations around you, that's one thing. But now you're taking something that was in the history of God's people. And you're saying, we're going to have to deal with this from our own history and our own people as God was dealing with them in the desert. He intentionally broke into pieces that snake which Moses had made. That wasn't an accident, right? So it wasn't a story of, well, you know... Hezekiah found this bronze snake. It was in one area, and he says, well, I'm just going to move this, bronze, this old bronze snake from one area to another area of the temple or something like that. And oops, the snake fell and it broke, and that's too bad, so sad. You know, we'll have to get rid of it. No, Hezekiah, it wasn't an accident. Hezekiah purposefully and intentionally tore down that bronze snake, and then he smashed it into pieces. Now, here's the difference. Here's the difference between the pagan fertility re, uh, religion and what... Hezekiah did right here. It's, just, it's not just regular idol smashing out there. He smashed the bronze snake. Now, God commanded, go back to Israel's history now. God commanded his people. They were to go into the promised land. Whenever they came across these pagan idols, like Baal and Ashtaroth, they were to cut them down. They were to smash them. They were to burn them. Because you remember the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make idols of any kind. No shape of birds or animals or fish. You must never worship or bow down any, to any other idol. Only worship God himself, right? So what was it about this bronze snake that had turned it into an idol? Now remember, this bronze snake was not originally, it wasn't originally an idol, but it became an idol, right? So why would taking down the snake that Moses used back in the day, why would that be so controversial, right? He took the bronze snake that Moses had made, and he smashed it into pieces. Well, here's the difference. It wasn't just a pagan shrine or a pagan idol or pagan image. This, this bronze snake came from Israel's history. You remember the story. This comes from the, the book of Numbers or the wanderings in the wilderness. It's the fourth book into the Bible. Remember the, where the people had to wander around the desert 40 years? Numbers tells the whole story of why that had to happen. It was not God's original intention for them to wander around the desert for 40 years. That wandering came as a, as a result, as a punishment for their own disobedience. So you can read that story in Numbers yourself. But when you get to Numbers chapter 21, they're coming to the end of the time of the 40-year wandering in the wilderness. They're getting ready now to go into the promised land. And the people started grumbling and complaining against Moses. Now, you can read this in a number of times because these pe God's people were always seemingly to grumble and complain against Moses. We don't like this bread. Same bread every day, manna. Yeah, it falls from heaven miraculously, but it tastes the same. We don't like it anymore. We want meat. We don't have enough water. You know, it's hot here in the desert, right? So they're all, instead of being thankful, they were complaining. And look what God did as a result of their grumbling and complaining. This is in Numbers chapter 21. It says, So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among them. Wow. The Lord sent poisonous snakes among them, among, among the people, the grumblers and the complainers. And many of them were bitten, and many of them died. I mean, God was serious about this. So the people came to Moses and said, We, guess what? You know, this, this is the pattern. They grumble and they complain. God judges them and punishes them. They realize they, they blew it. They come back to Moses and they say, please pray for us because we don't know what to do. Please make it right before God. So Moses, they said, please tell us what to do. We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Now pray that the Lord will take away these snakes, right? So then the Lord tells Moses, here's what God told Moses to do. Make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to the top of a pole. 
those who are bitten, so in other words, take this, fashion this bronze snake, attach it to the top of the pole, put the pole up in the middle of the camp, you know, so it's got to be pretty tall. It's got to be where you could see that pole from, you know, a lot of distance around. And by covenant agreement with God, God says, anybody who looks on that bronze snake that you raised up in the middle of the camp, anybody who looks on that and was bitten by a poisonous snake, that person will be healed, right? So this was an amazing thing that happened among God's people. And uh, it should have been the snake should have been. I mean, when I think of the bronze snake, I think, wow, look how God provided a way to show his mercy and to be able to forgive the sin of the people. Look on the bronze snake and you will live. Did not Jesus reference the bronze snake? Remember John's gospel, chapter three, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and Jesus said, you know, Nicodemus, I, I got to give you an, an analogy to what's going to happen to me. Because Jesus said, if I be lifted up and Jesus was lifted up on the cross, suspended between heaven and earth. Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw men to myself. And Jesus said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so will the Son of Man be lifted up. So this bronze snake was a, was a great episode in Israel's history of where God had a way to provide forgiveness for people who had sinned and been so, so disobedient toward him, right? Should have been a reminder of God's mercy and forgiveness, right? So, even the bronze snake which Moses had made in the wilderness, even that was disposed of because, okay, and this, this comes from the New Bible Commentary. The New Bible Commentary is commenting on this and then saying, wow, Hezekiah, 700 years later, Hezekiah is going through, smashing idols, looking for all kinds of false gods that he can get rid of to say, no, you guys got to get back to worship the one true God, the Creator, the Lord, Yahweh. Worship Him and Him alone. And instead, he finds this bronze snake, and people are bowing down. They're burning incense to it. They're worshiping the bronze snake instead. And this is like, wow. Even the bronze snake, which Moses made in the wilderness, it, it wasn't disposed of because it had become an object of misguided reverence, an item of misguided reverence. Hey, hey, we got to hang on to this thing. This is a great symbol of our history. This is a, this is a relic. This was a reminder of how God worked in the, in the lives of our ancestors. We need to hang on to this. Well, that, you, know, you know how certain things become tradition, right? And you hang on to it, and then that which you hang on to, because God used something in the past, now it's like this is the thing. And if we don't have this, then we're not going to be able to do church here and now. If we don't have what God used back then, then God's certainly not going to do anything among us now. And that's sort of the mentality. That's the mentality of God. Somehow they, hang, they, they hung on to this bronze snake saying somehow it was going to be a way that God would still interact with his people, even though it was just a way that God interacted them with them in the past. It was a powerful tool in God's life during the generation of the people who went through the wilderness. And yeah, God healed all those people that looked at the bronze snake. And they didn't just say, wow, thank you for healing us. Now, instead of leaving the snake in the wilderness, God, that was a great thing you did, but we don't need the bronze snake anymore. We're going to dump that and leave it in the wilderness. No, they brought it along. And 700 years later, it was still with them. And instead of worshiping God, now they were worshiping something that God used in the past. Now, in the day of Hezekiah, the godly king finds people bowing down to this bronze snake. So Hezekiah had this, had this step in. Hezekiah ordered... And here's my little uh, rhyme here. He says, break the snake. Break the snake, right? <laughs> Smash it into pieces. Get rid of it. It has become an, an object of worship instead of God, in place of God. You shall have no other gods before me. Get rid of it. So they weren't worshiping the holy, awesome, merciful, but invisible God. Now they were worshiping something that they could see. They were worshiping the bronze snake itself. And here's, here's where I'm getting at, friends. Here's the danger for the church today, right? Tools that God used mightily for the, for the transformation of people in past generation, those same tools just might become objects of our worship or idols. They might become idols in the church today. Something that God used powerfully in the past may not be helpful in the present. In fact, it might actually become harmful. In our, in our sinfulness, we can make an idol out of just about anything. 
right? We tend to make idols out of things that are important to us. We tend to make idols out of things that we think God would have something to do. And if we see something that God used to do or did something in the past, it's very easy to attach ourselves to that. So a bronze snake, just a reminder, I know I'm beating this to death, break the snake, right? The bronze snake that God used to bring healing held by a leader of God's people during their liberation from slavery, something that God actually used, actually became an idol. It became an object of worship. And today's not that much different. Here's the principle. Here's this watch out, and here's, here's what I'm saying today. Watch out and make sure this doesn't happen in our church today because God's people will struggle with taking tools of transformation that God used in the past, and we will make them objects of worship today. Now, I want to talk about three common idols in the church to become aware of, right? And you guys have those. There's your fill-in-the-blanks, the three Ps. <laughs> uh, if we have these in church, these three Ps, we might have split P in the church. That's so bad. But I thought about that during our prayer meeting. I thought I'd use it. So we don't want to have split P in the church. We have the idols of place. We have the idols of the past. And we can have the idols of program. What are the idols in the church that we have to watch out for and defeat, right? First of all, the idols of place. Place, as in location, as in geography, as in the real estate on which we gather. Because the Lord in the past has done a great work in the hearts of the people when they gather, the places of gathering can move from a, from a tool of transformation. They can, the, the place itself can become an object of worship. I'm talking about the building that we live in, right? And then some leader comes along and he says, hey, this building is great, but we could build another uh, uh, place of worship and it could be even better. It could be even more uh, attractive to bring people in from the community or something like that. And there would be people that would have a conniption fit if anybody ever said we need to leave our place. Lisa and I were part of a church. We, we joined that church. She joined it before I did, but... Let's just say from the early 80s, 1980s, last century, 81, yeah, that back in the day. We were part of that church, and they had a nice octagon amphitheater type, uh, type building. It seated about 700 people. And a new pastor came along about 10 or 11 years ago, and the church started growing. We went from three services to four services. We went from four services to five services on the weekend. And it got kind of ridiculous, and the pastor said, you know what I think we need to do? Uh, we can't, we, we're maxed out on the property that we're at. The, this was a church of like 3,000 people on, on 7.5 acres of land. We had 283 parking spaces. Now, that sounds like a lot <laughs> compared to our church here, where we have seven. But 283 parking spaces for 3,000 people is what you call inadequate parking. And so the pastor says, you know what we need to do? We need to think about relocating to a bigger piece of property in a bigger building where we can build a bigger worship center so we can house more people that are coming in to worship God and, and becoming followers of Jesus. What do you say? And there were, there were some early adopters that says, that sounds awesome because our mission is to reach people. It's not about this building. But there were plenty of other people in the church because the church was about 50 years old at the time that said, this is our sanctuary. This is our worship center. This is our house of prayer. You can't get rid of this place. This is where God lives. They didn't say it in these terms. They're like, this is where God is. This is where God lives. When we come in, we, we remember all the things that God did in this place. Well, God did some amazing things in the place, but it wasn't because of the building itself. It was because of the gathering of God's people, not because of the building of the real estate itself. Because Jesus says these words, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, Jesus says, there I am among them. That can happen in a living room. That can happen in a, com a community center. That could happen in the veterans building over there on the other side of Ives Park. That could happen in the park. It can happen anywhere God's people are gathered. God could be there and be among us and move among us. It's not about the place itself. Beware lest the real estate, the building that we're on, become an idol in itself, right? That, that would be the idol of place, okay? The building is not the church. God's people are the church. 
when the church is used, just a, a little uh, Bible lesson here on words. When the word church is used in the New Testament, it never refers to a building. The best translation of church in the New Testament is assembly or gathering. It's ecclesia. It's the gathering of God's people together. It's not the building itself. But, of course, what do you have left over from the Old Testament? You have the temple. What did you have from the pagan world in the Roman culture? You have all these temples of worship. You have all these, that's where God is. God is up there on that temple. God lives in that temple. And they brought that mentality over into the church. And next thing you know, there's basilicas and cathedrals and all kinds of stuff. And God inhabits that real estate. God doesn't inhabit any real estate anymore. God inhabits your heart and my heart. And when we gather together corporately to worship him, he is there among us. It's not about a building. So that's the idol of place. Secondly, there's the idols of the past. The idols of the past, right? In fact, you, you can't... It, Ray Johnston, I remember him giving a talk one time. He's a pastor up at Bayside. He said, you know, he was talking about this illustration where he was water skiing. And he was a great water skier in his day, and people were trying to knock him down. You know, try, this is what guys do. You know, he goes around riding his water ski, and they try to turn the boat in such a way, turn around, get him whipping around the corner and stuff like that, trying to knock him down. And his job was to stay up on the water skis the whole time. Somehow they distracted him during one of these water ski runs, and they, they got him to look behind him. So here he is, you know, water skiing. I, I'm guessing he's on one ski, or I don't know. One ski or two skis, and he's, and they got him to look behind. And as he looked behind for a while, he didn't see where he was going. And, he ran, and they ran him right into something. And he flipped, and <laughs> he, he got mildly injured. But he tells the story. He says, look, you can't move forward if you're always looking backward. You can't look forward. You can't see where you're going and figure a way how to get there if you're always looking backward. You can't drive very well if you're always looking in the rearview mirror. You guys know that, right? Uh, that's where that's called distracted. You know, you need your rearview mirror, but you're not always to look in it. So those, we're talking. These are the idols of the past. Because the Lord, and this is this whole story of the bronze snake, because the Lord worked in amazing ways in the past. The past can actually become an idol where people long for the past more than they long for the Lord. They equate the Lord today with what the Lord did in the past. Oh, if we just had those days again. Always reminds me of the All in the Family song, right? Archie Bunker and Edith sitting there on the piano. Those were the days, you know? And then, and then uh, Edith starts screeching. I'm not going to screech. And you knew when you were then. Yeah. Girls were girls and men were men. Mister, we could use a man like Herbert Hoover again, right? So they go through this whole song. But the whole, point, the whole point of the song is saying they're living now in the 1970s, but they're looking back and they're saying, things aren't so good now. I want to go back to, quote, the good old days. The good old days. Always looking backwards, right? The idols of the past. Well, if the former days, here's what I want to say about the past. And if God did work in the past, because I, I admit there's been amazing ways God has worked in the past. God, had, God filled stadiums in the 1950s, stadiums in New York City with Billy Graham crusades. I don't think, I don't, I, I think God used that method of evangelism in an amazing way in the past. I'm not sure that God is using that same method of evangelism in the same powerful way that he did in the 1950s through Billy Graham. There's just an example. God, you can celebrate what God did in the past, but you don't have to try and do the same thing in the present and expect the same results that you got in the past because God is working in a different way, right? If the former days were great, they were great only because the Lord was with his people and he was blessing their efforts to share the good news of Jesus and make disciples. Now, God wants us to live in the now and the today. God wants us to reach our own generation. God wants us to do great things for him in the present. But it's very likely that he's going to do it, he's, that he's going to reach people in the present. It's very likely God's going to do that in a different way than in, the same, than in the manner in which God reached them and people in the past, right? God is super creative he says all the time, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. 
It's so interesting. And, and I, th- there's part of me that, that loves this as well. I mean, we, Lisa and I, we went to a Good Friday service at the Methodist Church. Some of you guys were there with us, right? When I walked into that Methodist Church, it was like I was going back in time 40 years. I went back, I was a teenager at Fullerton First United Methodist Church in Fullerton. There were wooden pews. There was an organ, the only instrument in the church, the only God-ordained instrument in the church was an organ. And the only songs that we sung were the songs that came out of the hymn book, right? And that that was the only acceptable form of worship. And now 40 years later, you got, <laughs> you got all kinds of stuff. You got Hillsong, you got lights and sounds and, and all kinds of instruments. And oh my goodness, is that a drum over there? Can you believe that? that? That God is working today in different ways than which he worked in the past, right? So let's don't make an idol of the past. Let's celebrate what God did in the past, but let's see how God is going to make disciples. Let's see how he's going to reach people for Christ in the here and now, in the present. Because he's going to do it in a different way. God is doing a new thing. So that's the idols of the past. Number three, there are the idols of programs. The idols of programs, right? Now I'm going to go to meddling. Because God has changed lives through a program in, in, in certain uh, churches. God has used certain events in the lives of his people. Um, that sometimes God's people... Because God used that program, that people can now elevate that program to an authority. They give it a place, a stature, a, a level of respect that now the program is, is the only thing that really matters. Because that's the way God used it 20, 30 years ago. God has to gonna be used it the same way today. And he's not, but we feel like he is, so we're gonna hang on to that program. Programs can become an end in themselves when we don't remember that a program is just a tool that God used in a church's discipleship process, right? When that happens, if we start making an idol out of a program, we end up turning that program into a bronze snake. Sometimes we turn a program into a bronze snake. Now, how can we leaders, how can people in the church that are trying to do things God's way in 2019, here we are in West Sonoma County, how can we how can we learn from whatever lesson God wants us to learn this morning from thinking about Hezekiah and what he did in his days? How can we be like Hezekiah? How do you go about recognizing and removing modern-day bronze snakes? Well, first you ask, you ask a question. Is there any program around here? Is there any activity that we're doing today that might not be as effective today as it was in the past? It's not as effective as it was in the past, but still people don't want to give it up, right? They, they want to hang on to that, right? They want to, um, they want to hang on to that sacred cow. They want to hang on to that, that program or that activity or that event because they're convinced that that's the only way that God is going to work and reach people is through that program. So the leaders, we, we, all, we always have to point people. Don't point people to a program. A program is a tool that God uses in a certain generation, a certain time. Don't point people to a program. Point people to Jesus. It's the person of Jesus who's worthy of our worship. It's Jesus who transforms hearts. A program is just a tool that Jesus uses in a certain generation, in a certain culture. Don't elevate a program too high or it will become an idol in your church. The closer that you and I get to Jesus, here's the, here's the principle. The closer that you and I get to Jesus, the less attractive idols will look. And the closer we get to Jesus, the more likely we are to identify what idols are in our lives, what idols might even be in this church. As we turn our eyes on Jesus, as we look full in his wonderful face, the things of this world, programs, places, uh, the idols of the past, they start to look strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Leaders, we have to constantly remind people of the purpose of the church. Our church exists, this assembly, not the building, this assembly of God's people locally here in Sebastopol, we exist to make disciples. We exist to help people grow more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. We want to adopt his thoughts, his attitudes, 
his behaviors, his values. And if a program that we're using helps us to accomplish that, then goody for the program. But it's not, the pro it's not about the program. It's not about elevating the program saying, this is what does it. This is a tool temporarily that God is using, right? Jesus is the common denominator. When a church is embraced, when we embrace the mission of making disciples, then whatever programs we have, and, and I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example of what I see God using right now in our church. And it's not even on Sunday. It's right in the heart of the middle of the week. It's on Wednesday afternoon, and it's not in this room upstairs. It's in the room downstairs. And there are women. There's Holly. There's Eve. There's uh, Amber, and they're all uh, doing this ministry called the After School Bible Club. And they're up to 40 kids now. And these kids come in, they have a half day of school, and they come in and they're learning about Jesus. They're, they're playing games, they're having fun, they're eating a snack, but they are learning about Jesus. They had me over one time, this is like three weeks ago, and they said, ask the pastor. You can ask the pastor any question. These kids peppered me with like 20 different questions, good questions about God, about theology. And I was just blown away, and I'm answering the question, and I'm getting more excited. And they were like, well, thank you, Pastor Jim. And I was like, oh, well, I'm glad to be used in what God is using. So, God, so this is a program that God is using right here, right now. It's not the program itself. It's this idea that, that they've developed an activity to attract kids and teach them about Jesus. Attract kids and teach them about Jesus. Right? That's the whole point. Hezekiah was given a glowing summary you want to learn about his life? You want to say, what, what did God really think about Hezekiah when he finished his life? What is it that you want God to say about your life when you come to the end of your life? Look what God said about Hezekiah. It says in, in verse 5 or 6, it's in verse 5. It says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord. So who is he trusting in? The bronze snake? <clears throat> right? Not the bronze snake, not an idol, not anything else. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. You guys look up on the banner there. Do you see what that says? This is what the prophet Jeremiah talking to an idolatrous people that came along about 100 years after Hezekiah. And Hezekiah says, get rid of the idols. They're broken cisterns. They don't hold water. God is the living water. Trust in him. Tr Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before or after his time. He remained faithful to the Lord in everything, and he carefully obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given Moses. That's the kind of people that you and I want to be. That's the kind of people that, that please the Lord. I, I want to talk about um, something that God has used in the past that, that could be an idol later on. Um, and I want to talk about a controversial musical instrument that sometimes you find in the church today. Right Now, this is kind of interesting. There was a time when there was an introduction of a controversial new musical instrument that was being introduced in the church. It was being introduced into their worship services on Sunday. And God's people were getting really upset about the introduction of this instrument. Thank you for showing the graphic, uh, because that is the church organ. And I thought the church organ was only around for the last few hundred years. The church organ's been around for a long time. In the year 500, it was introduced into local churches. And it was, it, it's very interesting. Christians in the early church, many of them originally protested the bringing in of the organ into the church. They were saying that the organ was a worldly instrument. Why? Because what was the organ used for in that culture? The organ was used for when the emperor would come in or the Caesar or the king you know how you have that, like the trumpets that we have? You've seen these movies where the king comes in and everybody goes like, doo, 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 doo. and then everybody goes, oh, it must be the coming of the king. Or when the king of England, you know, she walks into the room and they're like, God save the queen, right? So they all have their song, you know, hail to the chief if you're the president of the United States. So they all have their song going in. Well, the organ was used to play that music for the coming in of the earthly emperor, the earthly king, the earthly Caesar. And the Christians were protesting this, saying, there's no God that we have but God, and we don't need an organ to announce 
the coming of our God because he's already here among us where two or three are gathered. But it, they, the churches began to adopt the usage of the organ. Uh, they began uh, to enter it in, and this was the sad part. The organ in the organized church started entering in, and it started being played now instead of the entering of the king or the emperor, the Caesar. Guess what? They started playing the organ in the same way for the coming in or the entering of the Pope. So the organ kind of went out of favor for a long time, and then it came back in the late Middle Ages, and it's been around uh, for the last few hundred years. When I first became a follower of Jesus and I was in the church, this was the only instrument that was in the church. And a time went on, there, as time went on over church history, there remained a high suspicion of the organ in church. They would only limit the organ. In some churches, they would only limit to the organ for sounding off the pitch of the church song at that moment. Like, you know, have you ever heard of a pitch pipe where they do that? Okay, everybody knows the right song. Everybody knows the right note to play. And then, because uh, you know, you're singing a cappella, if you don't start off with the right note, it's a disaster. And I've been in a few of these church services. Uh, we, need to, we need to sing with excellent, use the instruments God gives us uh, uh, to make his praise glorious in the church today. So anyway, that, that, that was the introduction of the organ. Uh, you, you fast forward down to church history in Illinois. This is in Hayworth, Illinois in the year 1891, Right? The headline of the newspaper uh, in Bloomington, Illinois, February 9, 1891, the devil was completely knocked out at Hayworth, Hayworth Christian Church. The devil was completely knocked out today at Hayworth Christian Church, right? And it says knocked out, of course, not the devil himself. Knocking out the devil in this uh, context meant that the Hayworth Christian Church organ was removed from the church. And this is what it said. Did you say organ? Yeah, that's right. 1891, they got rid of their own church organ. In the 19th century, many Protestant churches in the United States, they were roiled by, and I love 1890s you know, vocabulary. I had to look it up. Roiled means that's Christianese for they were really hacked off. They were really hacked off about the introduction of this instrumental instrumental music into their worship services, right? For many generations, a lot of Christian churches, they were a cappella, they were non-instrumental. There are many Christian churches today in the South that are still non-instrumental or a cappella. Some are, are making changes, but some are staying the way they are. In Hayworth, Illinois, this was a village about 15 miles south of Bloomington, the debate reached a, fear, a fiery denouement, denouement. This, you read articles in the 1890s, you better have a dictionary with you, right? Denouement. So I look up denouement, and it says a resolution to a drama, right? It, so the, the controversy in this church reached a fiery resolution to the drama when several individuals carried the Christian church organ outside and set it ablaze. This controversy pitted traditionalists who favored more austere worship services patterned after the practices of the early Christians. Hey, they didn't have musical instruments that we can read about in the New Testament when you see them worshiping, so we shouldn't have any worship, any musical instruments today. That was their argument, right? Well, the traditionalists won the argument at that church at that moment, and they hauled out that, quote, evil church organ. They brought it outside the church, and they proceeded to burn it. They burned their own organ because they considered the church organ to be evil. Now, in my day when I was young, doing that would have been sacrilegious. Replacing that awesome instrument of God that Bach used, solo deo gloria, you know, to only to God be the glory, that God used for many generations in the church when somebody said, hey, you know what, do we really need the church organ anymore? Because now we have all these other musical instruments and we can use them to lift up God in our singing and our worship. Do we have to keep playing the organ? And there were people in the day that thought you were the Antichrist if you brought that up. How dare you even think about getting rid of the church organ? The point I'm trying to make by the story of the organ is that every generation, it seems that there are traditionalists in the church. They want to keep things just the way they were. And then there are usually younger generations that come along and they come up in the church and they come in and they say something like, you know, 
that doesn't seem to be working anymore. Can we try something different? Can we try this program or this idea or this style of worship? Can we try this over here? Because we share your goal. We want to reach this community for Christ. We want to reach our generation for Christ. But we think this way over here might be a more effective way to do it. And the way to tell if you have an idol in a church is if, if that sacred cow, if you can't think of life, if you can't think of church without having that style. I've, I've, had, I've seen churches, by the way, this is a beautiful table right here in remembrance of me. I've seen churches where they remodel and somebody says, you know what, um, we're going to come up with a different way of serving communion. We're going to have it brought in from trays from the back rather than having all the trays in the front with the table in remembrance of me. Can we do it that way? There were people in the church that blew a gasket thinking, how dare you even consider getting rid of this holy table where it says, in remembrance of me, where communion and, and offering have always been kept in store. So <laughs> all I'm saying is um, beware of what could turn into an idol if you make that the main thing instead of the Lord God and Jesus himself, right? You know, the, these are what the psalmist said, and I, I want to quote three psalms to you as we close. And then I want to say, do any of what the psalmists are saying, do any of, of what they're talking about, does any of it have to do with, with objects of worship, with certain programs, certain styles? Does, does any of it have to do with a building? Does any of it have to do with a, uh, a certain activity or program within a church or a congregation? I just... Try to answer that question as you're listening to this. Psalm 84.10. Look at this. How did God's people over the centuries, how did they keep close to God? The psalmist said this, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. The attitude of, wow, a thousand days outside a place of worship, I would much rather be, much, much rather be in a place of worship than anywhere else. Look at Psalm 42. The author says, as the deer pants for streams of water. I've seen my dog panting. I haven't seen a deer pant, but I've seen my dog pant because he's really thirsty. As a deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? And that's what we're doing right now. This is the assembly of God's people meeting together in his name to worship him, to learn how to walk in his ways, to learn how to get rid of idols in our life. They're keeping us from proper and right worship of our God. So there's Psalm, Psalm 42, and then finally jump down to Psalm 73. This is what my favorite one. How do we keep our hearts right before God? Look what this psalmist writes. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail, my spirit may grow weak, but God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine forever. As for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign God my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things you do. I don't see a building in there. I don't see a bronze snake. <laughs> I don't see anything else except the pure worship of the invisible creator, God, who made us and who redeemed us in Jesus Christ. So, what do we rely on, friends? What do we rely on to gather together to meet God in our church services today? Is it a style of worship? Is it a certain order of worship? Is there some activity that we have to do, and if we don't do it, then God didn't show up that day? You've got to ask yourselves those questions. What are we relying on? If, that, if what we're relying on is not God himself, then we have dipped over into the area of idolatry. The Lord himself, let's don't confuse the Lord with some particular song or some style of music. Let's don't confuse the Lord himself with a particular instrument. It's not a light show. It's not a fog machine. What do we really rely on is the gospel. What we rely on is the proclamation, the communication of the good news of Jesus Christ, that he came and he saved and you can have eternal life if you trust in him. That's what the message is all about. The gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes. There's the truth, and we won't bend on the truth. But you know what? On the methods of delivering that truth, on the way we communicate that truth, whether I have a microphone on or not, 
whether there's electrical lights on or not, whether there's a media screen or not, whether you're watching via the internet or not. The point is, are you learning and growing in your faith? Are you learning how to follow Jesus better by being together in this assembly today? There's the truth, and we don't bend on that truth. But the way that that truth gets communicated, the method, the style, that changes in just about every generation. Hezekiah's story today is a warning to us. God's tool that he used yesterday, if we don't watch out, God's tool yesterday can become man's idol today. God says, you shall have no other gods but me. And that's got to be just as true in our places of worship today as it is in our own private hearts. Amen? Hannah, I'm going to ask the, you... Uh, I'm sorry, we have the choir. Choir, if you're singing in the choir, would you please rise and come forward? And we're going to close together in, in prayer before we have the choir sing. I just want to have a word of prayer together. But choir, keep on coming forward. The rest of you, would you please... Take a moment with me and bow your heads for prayer. Dear God, we've been all over the map today, and I recognize that. We talked about idols. We talked about Hezekiah. We talked about a bronze snake. We talk about, we've talked about idols in, of our past, idols of programs. We've talked about idols in places or geographies or buildings. God, please open our eyes. Lord, open our eyes to see where we have taken these places or traditions or programs, maybe something that even you used in a mighty way in the past, and we've converted those things into idols. God, help us to discard idols, anything that competes for supremacy, for your supremacy in our hearts today. God, help us to worship you alone, the living God, Help us to seek you just as zealously as that deer pants for the water. Lord, whom do we have in heaven but you? God, we desire you and you alone more than anything else on earth. So let us remember, let us remember the words of that song. Where is our hope? <laughs> what are we putting our trust in? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And you know what else? All other ground is sinking sand. Help us to remember that today. In Jesus' name, amen.